The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus to bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary based on well-verified references fed through vigilance and discernment. Our desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. Clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Welcome, whistleblowers, truth investigators, digital warriors, and the curious. This is Kinthea, together with another Driscoll and Timothy Saunders, for The Other Side of the News. We are three artists. Timothy, a highly sought-after world-class yacht designer. Aneta, an interior designer and medical intuitive. And myself, a painter and sculptor of the face on Mars and co-founder of Global Peace Media, a nonprofit. Today's show is entitled, you guessed it, Hotel California. We're doing a roundtable tonight because there is so much breaking news across the broad spectrum of topics. Our main focus will center on the protocols of hospitals and the reports coming from around the world concerning the lack of compassionate patient rights. My eldest son recently met a caregiver who told him many frightened individuals with only slight cold symptoms who checked into their facility were put on ventilators and were dead 20 minutes later. This was told to him in confidence without any agenda as he is not in any way tracking this information, nor does he have any authority to do anything about it. There is a high, this is highly disturbing news, and we would prefer to report only on the breakthroughs and successes that are being achieved. But this is a time when all these dark hidden acts must be exposed to expunge their influence and control on global events. This morning, I had a conversation with an with Andrew Curry and my associate and co-founder of Global Peace Media, Azara Anna. Listen to what Azara had to 
to say about the highly sought up, um, forgive me, <laughs> listen to what Azara, a highly sought after producer, had to say about child suicides in media reporting. Keith, would you please read the play article, my read sound somewhere that um, youth suicide in Canada is up 300% to what yeah. it was. Yeah. Pre-pandemic, and it's, it's, it's very alarming. One of the gentlemen there says that it's a, it's a ticking time bomb, and there's no they you know, they're trying their best to stem it, but this is the silent, the real pandemic. Andrew is suicide rates, uh, and in the, here's an interesting thing in this country because I had occasions I've had I have occasions to talk to people from all over the planet and I was asking a university professor from the University of uh, Havana in Cuba if they were experiencing the same suicide rate she did not know what I was talking about why because Cuba at the beginning of the pandemic banned all news from America, all news having to do with the pandemic. So nobody in Cuba, none of the young kids in Cuba were locked down with 24-hour fear porn, uh, oh, everything is so bad, everybody's dying kind of thing, which is the media drumming that beat every day. The poor kids are listening to that, thinking they're isolated anyway, they've lost hope, and they started to do themselves in, and they, they're calling this thing kid suicide because children as young as eight years old are committing suicide and it's going up and up and up in alarming rates um so yeah the the interesting part again is that these other countries did not experience that spike in the same way that america because and the only the only factor that was different was that their news was not behaving in the same way that our news is behaving in terms of 24. It was a, honestly for me, my, if you want my opinion, the 24 hour news cycle, when that started in this country, that was the beginning of the end as far as I can see in terms of tranquility, in terms of any kind of holistic environment being still available in America. Because it didn't matter where you were at any time of the day, you had a news being fed to you, and I, I should know this because I know people in newsrooms, and the model in the newsroom, and you might have heard this, the model of the newsroom is if it bleeds, it leads, meaning the more blood and guts are attached to any story, the more of a chance it has that it will be the lead story, and since all the reporters are fighting for the lead stories, because lead stories mean, you know, disability, more money, et cetera, et cetera. So they're all, imagine, you have a news media where everybody is scrambling around, not to find the best of society, but to find absolutely the dregs and the worst of society. How are you going to have an entire culture function with that going on? You can't. This is heartbreaking, but we must see what's there in order to rectify the course that we're set on and to make a stand for a better future. So where do we find ourselves? How can we make sense of all this and break through to a more equitable solution for our planet and for our future generations? Here is a powerful message of positive understanding and action. Keith, excerpt In my mind, it doesn't make sense that to grow something, you should dig a hole and cover it with dirt. 
Well, I want to make the distinction about being planted because the act of planting can be confusing because planting looks no different from burial. You bury the dead to get rid of the body, but you plant a seed so that it can go through a metamorphosis and come back up better than it was when it went down. Everything you see above ground that blossoms and, and that's beautiful, it was underground one time. When you under stress, don't just think, man, Lord must not mean for it to be. How you think you're going to be a plant without no dirt? As long as you take a bag of seeds and keep it on the shelf, you'll never have a harvest. You can take a bag of seeds and put it on the shelf and put it in the light somewhere and it will never produce. Because seeds were designed to produce in the darkness. Because in the privacy of darkness, seeds begin to go through a metamorphosis. The transformative power of God, the ability to turn this into that, is often done in the dark. Oh, it's often done in the dark. He puts you in a private place, and there he begins to bring about change. It was dark, but it wasn't over. It might be dark for you right now, but it's not over. You might be going through a season of the absence of the thing that you legitimately need. You might have to go up without what your neighbors have, but it's not over. Sometimes you have to go through something to find out who you really are, to find out that you can do more than you thought you could do. If I look around me, I see circumstances. If I look in me, I see hope. If you've been looking at some things that's been discouraging you, shut your eyes to what you see. The power that's going to deliver you is coming from the inside. No. I just want to stop and thank God that he allowed me to go through my changes in the darkness. I came to preach to somebody that might be in a dark place right now. I came to tell you that weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. That where you are is not where you're going to be. I came to tell you that you got hidden treasure that your first grade teacher might have lied when she said you couldn't learn or you couldn't be or you couldn't do or your first girlfriend might have lied when they said you were a nobody but after this you shall come forth Steve Harvey I'm better I'm better than I was when I went down I'm better for it I didn't like it but I'm better for it you see, I was planted in a dark place, but I'm better for Every time you go through something dark, remember you've been planted, not been buried. And when you come up, can somebody tell them I'm coming up? <laughs> that was Steve Harvey reflecting on the truth of nature as a blueprint for the evolution of the soul. And however you want to term it, Within us each is the power, the consciousness to create change globally together. 
And I take great comfort in that because, you know, facing these, mm, this information of all this dark stuff, it can be overwhelming. Truthfully, it can be. But I really know that there is a power in each of us. And that's what I'm give thanks for, frankly. I give thanks for the power inside of you and the power inside of me. So our show tonight is called Hotel California. You can find it by going to the other side of midnight.com. In the navigation menu, click on the other side of the news or click on tonight's show banner, Hotel California. With that, I'd like to bring on my co-hosts, Annette Driscoll and Timothy Saunders. So, do you have any pithy insights for this week? Of course I do. <laughs> so many good things have happened this week. And, uh, it's again, it's more topics than we can cover in our short time together. But, you know, it really comes down to the way you view things. And we all are being take into a place where we, we need to have self-responsibility and take action for our own lives. And I was watching something and this, this little kid uh, had said, my teacher told me guns kill people. I told her my pencil failed my math exam. And it's really, you know, it's really about something like that. It's like you can't make things that are outside yourself responsible for your life. And so if we all take that and we all look at that, you know, try to look at life from the perspective that we're in the driver's seat and we're in control and that we, we have something to say. We can make a change. Things are happening. We can be self-responsible about our decisions and the education of ourselves, which I know everyone listening to this program is, is making a really strong uh, move towards self-education or you wouldn't be listening at all you can't blame everybody else and everything we can blame governments and we can blame corrupt you know politicians and bad people that are lying that are thank god all being outed right now but uh you know bottom line is to keep yourself alive in this situation that we find ourselves i think uh we need to really step back and say hey you know this is it's not my pencil's fault and, and the guns don't actually kill people unless I pull a trigger, right? Unless somebody pulls a trigger, unless somebody uses the wrong stuff for to, to add up with that pencil and puts down the wrong answer, it's, it's not the pencil's fault. So anyway, that was my little pithy thing. And I'm sure that my co-host Timothy has things to say, too, to come in this week. Well, good morning. Thank you very much. I'm sure I do have lots to say. It's just very early here. So I'm... Um, <laughs> <laughs> sure is. <laughs> yeah. uh, the the story, which there are lots of stories, of course. Every week we see good, bad, and ugly. Um, the story that is not going away for me is the story which started being uncovering, uncovering, uncovered last week. By uh, I first saw it by Gareth Ike uh, on his program, and David Ike followed up. And also in the week, uh, Richie Allen also featured an extended show on, on this subject as well. And that's a story which is really growing very fast in uh, momentum about how a mainstream reporter, uh, a woman called 
Jackie Devoy, um, has been researching for pretty much the last year how elderly people are making fast exits from their care homes and from hospitals. And, you know, on the surface, we, we know there's all sorts of subterfuge going on because of this uh, pandemic. But these, these are the victims of, it seems, a predetermined strategy. And this is being uncovered, and this is one of the things I'd like to talk about. I don't like, we need to talk about this evening uh, in more detail. So that's really the story which I'd like to lead to. I'm sure you have many other things to talk about as well, Aneta and Kintia. That's where I'd like to go to. Well, would you like to go directly to that, or would you like to cover some other things first? No, I, I, this is this is the main story for me. I mean, there are a lot, lots of other things happening, but um, this is this is the main one in my opinion. But I, I don't know if you guys are ready to to go there. Maybe you want mm-hmm. to cover some you know general topics and then focus on that later. Well, I kind of want to cover a few general things that we had because they are all related to this, and, and I think it will lead in pretty well. Uh, I actually had gathered quite a bit of, of things on the, uh, you know, what we have going on with this uh, biological weapon that's being leveled at us. And uh, I actually wanted to just go over a few things that people may have not been aware of if they're new to this or they may have forgotten uh, that, you know, just straight up things about these um, jabs. Okay. So, the jabs are, they're in trials, and they finish in 2023. So when the FDA, when people say, oh, it was, they, you know, Pfizer says it was safe or Moderna, well, they're flat out lying because, you know, they can't say that. They haven't done any animal studies, and we can get back to the animal studies. I certainly have lots of data for all of that, but I just want to go over some basic things. Uh, we've talked about theirs here before. In my items, I do have a video explaining how you can go and do your own research and study it from any angle you want. It shows you how to to use all the different parts of that, which is really quite an elaborate uh, search engine for data. I will tell you that right even in their own data, it says that it's only about a 1% reporting. So you can take that and figure out the numbers there, whatever numbers you're seeing, multiply times 100, and um, there you go. So so with that, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about where we stand right now. Australia, for example, um, had, uh, I'm sorry, so certainly have drums in the background playing here. I don't know if you guys can hear that. Uh, but in Australia, since January 1st to May 23rd, they had one death. Uh, they had from COVID, one death from COVID. They had 210 deaths from the vaccine. They had 22,031 adverse reactions that were significant. So this is really troubling. This is one person of the actual thing that we're supposed to be not, um, you know, we're supposed to be vaccinating against. In the UK, we have uh, the UK, the US, and uh, European Union up until the end of uh, May, we had uh, 16,397 deaths, 1,448 
almost 449 um, adverse reactions. So what I'm going to point out here is that we've got something that, you know, the uh, CDC, which is, by the way, a vaccine corporation, they have 58 patents, and they made $4.5 billion last year from those patents. It is a privately held corporation for people that don't understand that. So this thing is, you know, this is a huge money-making machine, and these vaccines are being released on us. And we, you know, the idea here is that we're supposed to have something that's safer and keeps us safe. So I wanted to just bring these things forward because it, it does feed directly into the story that we're gonna we're gonna talk about with uh, the basically the offing of the elderly is the euthanization of the elderly and they're using all these as excuses. So it's important to understand how corrupt, how deceptive, how this thing is really um, not what they're saying. Okay. So and, and it's it's an emotional topic for for me. I know it's an emotional topic for uh, Timothy. It's very upsetting that all of this is happening, but it's really important that you understand that this is what is going on. Uh, I have tons of data. I probably won't be able to cover it all, but I wanted to just kind of preface it with that. Also, in the news, I wanted to talk about a few things, like 80 per, 86% of the children, and they're, they're giving these vaccines to children. The children have pretty well zero risk of contracting it, let alone dying from it. I mean, statistically, it is zero. Uh, so 86% of the children that have received the Pfizer vaccine have negative side effects. Um, and so they, they, did a, they did the first cruise, the first world cruise. Uh, it was a celebrity cruise on the boat that was called the Millennium. And it was the world's first fully vaxxed cruise. And guess what? They, they showed up with all kinds of positive tests for, for COVID. Gee, I wonder why. Hmm. If you know anything about the vaccine, the science, you'll understand exactly why that is, and hopefully we'll get into that. The FDA just ordered uh, Johnson Johnson to throw out 60 million doses of the uh, COVID-19 jab because it's not safe. And uh, then there's other things going on. They're trying to push off the AstraZeneca into places where it, um, you know, to, to third world countries that don't know any better. So this is very, very corrupt. So I'd say it's time to start replacing the term that they're using vaccine hesitancy with survival instinct. And that brings us right to the survival of our elderly and what we need to be doing about this and how we need to stand up. So I just want to get a few things in. Timothy, take it away there. Well, the thing which I believe we need to set the foundations for is that the – I'm talking specifically about the National Health Service or NHS in the United Kingdom. Uh, there are, but I, I'm really curious to know, I have, I've lived, I lived in a number of different countries around uh, the world in my time. I, I'm very curious to know if the same strategy is in play, and we'll obviously unravel and, and explain this in more detail shortly, but if the same strategy is in play in different countries as well. I mean, this would then be the fingerprint of the WHO, possibly United Nations, possibly you know, the, the Gates of Hell, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation, possibly, and so on and so on. You know, those same fingerprints, I'm sure, will show up just as soon as we, we uncover this. So this, this is a big story that's breaking. In relation to the United Kingdom, the International Health Service, the NHS was a, an organization that began in Manchester after the Second World War. It's basically a 
uh, a health service which is free to all, all citizens in the United Kingdom. Um, and it, it's funded, obviously, through taxation and uh, the representatives in government that steer that money towards, towards various departments. So that's the origin of it. So the idea is that everybody has the right to free health care, which, which is a great thing, I think. Um, so what I've noticed is, I mean, I, I was not around at the time of the Second World War, obviously, um, but what I've noticed through my, my generation is that it has changed massively over the years. So in the beginning, okay, let me say it has changed massively over the years, but obviously my perception of it has also changed over the years. So there are two different parallel tracks going on here. So first of all, I would say in the beginning, it really was a, a healthcare system which people used to look up to. They used to feel very grateful for, very happy to have that uh, sort of safety net there. This is for emergency and also general healthcare as well. And, you know, it, it, if you think back now, how many different television programs there are, which television programming uh, there is about the healthcare service, you know, lots of dramas, lots of kitty plots, um, you know, I'm, I'm not just focusing on the UK now, but you know, internationally, I mean, how many American healthcare TV um, movies are focusing on the healthcare aspect. But please keep it with the UK, but the whole thing is that over my generation, the NHS has become this sort of this hero, this icon of society, this, it's almost like this person, this person, that persona, which uh, people may not talk against, people may not criticize. It, it's, it's, it's really, I'm trying to explain it, but it's a really weird thing in the way that, you know, it's a service, it benefits everybody, and if anybody criticizes it, then, oh, that's taboo. You know, what are you doing? This is, this is us. This is, it, it, it's, it's a weird entity. It's become a weird entity. And that entity grew up over the last decades into something which was far more selfish, aggressive. Um, I mean, even if you go back to you know, 10, 20 years or more, 30 years maybe, it, it, its persona changed. It, it had far more management. Um, it had marketing strategies. It had uh, directives and so on, which of course you'd expect with any large organization. But what I'm trying to say is that the, along the way, I believe we'll expose this very shortly, uh, is the healthcare, the actual health well-being of people. That's the primary reason that it's there this has become very much the secondary um, reason for its being. It, it, it seems to be an entity which has grown strength um, and it, it's, it's protecting itself. You know, while, if we just go back even one year, while the COVID-19 scandemic has been going on, in the United Kingdom, the government were asking public to go out into the streets in the evening, I think it was every day at 8 o'clock, give a round of applause. People would just go out and give a round of applause. In my opinion, it's not just my opinion, but the, the data we have also is that not only were these 
hospitals reducing in size, the number of staff being reduced every year. So in fact, that they had no longer had the capacity to even deal with a normal uh, winter of flu. So when you have this big pandemic coming along as well, then clearly it appeared as if the hospitals were overrun. That's not the case. And uh, I think what we should realize is that there's a reason why the hospitals seem to be overflowing with people. And that comes back to the PCR. I'll not call it a test because the PCR is a fake indicator in order to gather up a large number of people um, and class them as something which is uh, less than healthy. So I think that, and so this is something maybe we should deal with before we go into the full subject, is the PCR is, is, the, is the ramp to creating the numbers, the cases for this pandemic. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, yeah that'd be great. We're just about at break, so maybe we can pick that up on the other side. Sounds good to me, absolutely. I think we're almost there. Yes. <laughs> Just remember the virus that they say that is making everybody sick. Nowhere in the world, not one country, not one institution, not the CDC, nobody has this virus that's making us sick on file. It does not exist. All the Freedom of Information Acts are empty over and over again. The virus nowhere exists. So if that is correct, and that's what they're telling us, how in the world can they be testing for it? How in the world can they be making this kind of injection to put in us to save us from this? So we need to start asking the obvious questions because by science and medicine, that makes no sense. I've never heard of that before. Are we able to purchase all those and this was supposed to be a novel infection. You start looking at the big picture, you start looking at everything, you'll find this is actually a planned pandemic. This is not actually what they're telling us in the media. So then you have to ask the bigger question, why? So we have to look closely into this and what's very concerning is that none of the manufacturers or our government will allow any of us to analyze the vials. It's illegal for us to analyze them. They won't let us look in there. Well, why? If there's nothing to hide, why can't we see what's inside these vials? Because right now we have no proof that this virus even exists. What made people sick around the world, in my opinion, is many different things. And they used a testing mechanism that was faulty and that could cross-react with anything. It could literally cross-react with bacteria, with other flus, with other colds, false positives. So that's meaningless. So there's no proof of this supposed, you know, bad, weird virus affecting everybody. This is Dr. Carrie Made on the other side of the news, and I'm excited to be here because we have freedom of speech and no censorship.
California. And I am speaking to you from California. It does really feel like Hotel California here. Our governor, if you can call him that, our Lord Ruler, something like that, Gruesome Newsom, he has, uh, I think he's retaliating for having the recall go through. And uh, he has, we were supposed to have uh, lockdowns listed on the 13th of June which is Sunday, and now he said there will be at least three more months, just, you know, arbitrarily, and it's based on a, uh, a case-demic, which is based on this thing called PCR. And, and you know, Timothy is absolutely correct when he says it's not actually a test. It is a, a, a process that, that says there's genetic material present. And if you amplify it enough, you will find genetic material no matter what. And I actually feel that it was a way to collect genetic material data and to so they know what they're dealing with because this whole thing's engineered, but that gets into a whole other realm. But the thing is, is that it, it is not only that, that every time you increase the cycles, it is less and less accurate. Anything over 25 cycles is not accurate. And actually, the accuracy is down at around 17 cycles. So why were they running it at 35 to 40 cycles? Because they needed to get case demic. They needed to get the numbers and say, oh, we have this many cases. Well, cases means nothing. First of all, you can be totally healthy and, and you know, be a case. And secondly, you can, if you have the, it amplified enough, all of them will be positive. And that's why the, uh, the CDC has had to step back and actually admit that 97, 97% of the positives they had for COVID in the case-demic were false positives. That means only 3% were correct. That's staggering. And yet that's so that, quietly in the background. That's yeah. after the damage is done. That's after that's the after, pizza being yeah. programmed. Absolutely. Yeah. The and, other and, thing, know, that's a very yeah. interesting point, Dennis, you brought up just now as well, is the PCR is obviously taking swabs, swab samples from people mm-hmm. and 
recording that on file somewhere. Now, you know, people can be cynical and say uh, it, it's not actually the case. But on the other hand, it, it is basically taking uh, mucus from uh, individuals and processing it and recording the data and sticking it in a database somewhere. So it is absolutely taking a, I don't know if genetic is, is too deep a word to use, but it, it is absolutely a sample. And the other thing that I'd like to draw attention to, it is also in sensor, census year. I think 2020 was the year that you guys in the States did census. Yes. And also in the United Kingdom. So I don't know if that's worldwide. It just happens to be UK and USA. But isn't that strange how all that data, while it's been collected with PCR, is also being collected to know exactly who is living where, why, what, and how. Um, and also an awful lot of other questions, which, in my opinion, seem to be none of your goddamn business, frankly. frankly. <laughs> I don't know what you think. Well, I, of course I think like that. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, uh, give me liberty or give me death girl over here. Um, yeah, no, that's, it's, it's none of their business. And, you know, I find it interesting that, the, the uh, right intuition here is that we, you know, that, that they say, well, we should not question the reality of the epidemic. And it shifts very easily to we should not question our government's response to the epidemic. And this is all part of that response. It's like, what are they tracking? What are they doing with that? I have some very damning evidence, which we probably don't have time to get through on this show, but that says that, that there's much more nefarious things going on here because the vaccine that they are injecting in people is actually, it, it most decidedly is a bioweapon, and, and I'd take anyone on on that one because I have so much data. It, it, it has binary capabilities, which I'll probably get into a little bit later, but this is very serious. And if you have the information, you have the data on people, you can actually tailor these things exactly and they know which vaccines are going to do what. And believe me, they, these vaccines are not all created the same. If you think you've got a, a Pfizer and a Pfizer is a Pfizer is a Pfizer, no, 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 no. There's different variants within that. And one, you know, one could say, well, maybe it's because they're testing. Well, yes, it's a test. Every person that's gotten this vaccine is, is a guinea pig and didn't even get paid well. Didn't get paid at all. Um, and I can go into that whole thing about that whole corruption. But, yeah, it's, it's a terrible terrible uh, violation of our, our privacy, of our rights. And people, the worst part is, is they are voluntarily, because they are not questioning, and they are not using their intuition saying, hey, there's, maybe there's something else going on here, which is what's going on with our elderly people. So they're using the fake test, they're calling it a test, to, to classify people into categories that, that they don't belong in. Yeah. Well, going back to one of the points I was making earlier, or trying to make earlier, I don't know if I described it very well, but people of an older generation, they'll be far more trusting of the National Health Service than perhaps uh, people of my generation. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I've watched, uh, I didn't know my grandfather, my father's side, uh, he died at a very young age, but I've watched certainly three of my grandparents basically be whisked away in hospitals in the NHS. And all three of them, I was at different ages at the time, of course, 
But in during their passing or on the run up before their passing, I had some really significant questions like, well, why are you not treating them? Why are you not helping them? Why are you not, you know, uh, going to use this procedure, whatever it is? And ultimately, the sort of, you know, the managed consent, consenting answer came back saying, well, you know, this is not what we do at this stage. This is not the right uh, step in the protocol. This is uh, not how it works. And of course, if people are walking around in white coats and looking very official and sounding very confident with a whole, you know, system behind them, then who am I to question that? Because I'm not a doctor. I'm not a specialist. And I just sort of thought, oh, okay. Yeah, well, yeah, all right. You know, if I look back now at my grandmother, okay, it's going back uh, many decades, a uh, very sweet lady, very trusting, especially in something like the uh, NHS. She she was on her way out and she needed dialysis. Now, maybe I'm slightly highly focused on them, slightly highly focused on this because perhaps you know, there weren't that many dialysis machines around at that time. I'm not going back that, that far back in history. But I don't know that. But they said at the hospital, uh, she needs dialysis. And I said, okay, so when are you going to start that? And they said, well, we're not going to. And I said, well, why the hell not? And they said, well, because the machine is 22 miles away. Right. And, well, so it's too far away. We can't use it. So now what? So basically, you know, I was managed into a point where I should just basically shut up and we watched her die. Uh, that's an example. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back. I'm, I'm skipping huge amounts of detail there, but the point, that's the gist of it. So what I'm saying is that she trusted. I was not aware enough. I, I was not uh, knowledgeable enough to question this any further than the, you know, surface questions I had. And ultimately, I did shut up, stand in line, and we watched her die. So that's just an example. Yes. Well, you know, we're, we're getting we're getting more aware of what's going on. You know, in science, the the solution to bad information is more information, not less information, and that includes like what you know we can do as um, the people that are caring for elderly and to be aware of what's going on. So. I think we should really get, get right down to that, Timothy, what, what we have come across, what's going on with this uh, particular drug that they've ordered huge amounts of. Okay, well, let me just finish one more point that I was going into before the break, and that is that the NHS is a huge organization. I'm, I'm talking more about this because I know about this more than I do other health uh, organizations around the world. Although I have lived in Holland and I have had some experience there. I've lived in France. I've had some experience there. I've spent time in the USA and I've had some experience there. And obviously Turkey, I'm, I'm here and I have some experience. So I think I can see kind of a section through many countries, but it's not to say I know enough because obviously there's a lot more countries than I've lived in. So, but the point is in the NHS, National Health Service, the while people were out in the street clapping, giving round of applause, which I think in itself is a very bizarre thing to ask people to do. But strangely enough, within a very short time, people were, you know, picking up the habits and, and just doing it and thinking it's absolutely right. I think it was actually making the public complicit to the lie 
the lie that the hospitals were overrun and full with dying people from this terrible COVID-19 virus. I when think so fact, too, yeah. But that the reality is that a lot of these hospitals were empty. The government spent millions and millions of pounds on creating these, uh, I think they were called Nightingale Emergency Hospitals. I mean, I think you saw the model being set up in, in China. It was rolled out around the world. I mean, there were literally sort of exterior hospitals being created in a very short time in the car parks outside of hospitals. The idea was to fill them up with, you know, you know, thousands of people on their last legs and about to die because of COVID-19. As far as I know, none of them were ever used at all. I, I remember, I'm just remembering that ship that Trump mm-hmm. uh, pushed to get back into service and brought into New York. I think that was almost never used. I mean, it was, I think, a few hundred people used it, wasn't it? What was the name of that? It was was a mercy, and it was never used. And and part of that was uh, Como. I mean, it was a political thing. He didn't want to, he didn't want to accept help. And uh, he had his own agenda about uh, doing in a lot of elderly people, you know, like get, you know, useless eaters, get rid of them. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, we aren't, we still haven't had an audit on uh, how many people he killed that way, but it is estimated around 15,000 people that died needlessly at the hands of uh, Como. And there's, you know, there's five governors in the United States that have that same um, that same brand of blood on their hands, and one of them is it is in the state where I am, which is uh, Gruesome Newsome, uh, mm-hmm. California. And of course, uh, we know about the Michigan, and you know, on it goes. Yeah. But so, yes, this is this is something that's happening around the world. Okay, so that that's an important data point. I think it is not just exclusive at United Kingdom, and I think that the the people have been massaged or guided or manipulated one way or another through media to basically support the fantasy of COVID nineteen. I mean, I think I say it is a fantasy. It's not my fantasy, but it, it it seems to be somebody's fantasy because I don't think it is at all what it says on the on the box on the tin. So when I start ripping into the NHS, there are going to be people saying, how dare you talk about this? How, how can you possibly criticize this great service? You know, these people who are brave and they, you know, they work around the clock and relentlessly and, and they risk their life to save others. Yes, there are going to be people in that group which do fall into that category. And I am grateful, and I'm sure we're all grateful for the, the service those people do. But on the other hand, and let me just go to one point as well. There's a very good friend of mine, I won't mention his name, um, somebody who uh, suffering from diabetes. And I do not know all the ins and outs of this uh, because I have not spoken to him firsthand. So recently was uh, found himself in a different state than normal. And his brother was on the telephone to him saying, I think you need to call an ambulance now. Just go and do it. And because of the state he was in, I think he was saying, actually, I think I'm fine. I'm going to be okay. I'm just going to lie down, take a rest, whatever it is he normally does. But in the end, his brother did manage to convince him to call an ambulance. An ambulance did turn up very quickly, took him to a hospital. They dealt with him. They tested him. They told him that he should, in fact, be using uh, a different level of insulin and they put him back on his feet within a couple of days, two or three days. And 
yeah, he was extremely grateful because he, he feels that his life was saved. And in that particular case, he is one of the very few rare people I know that come out with what I consider to be a success story. My, my experiences with the NHS are um, anything but successful. But, uh, so yes, when I rip into the NHS, I'm going to upset a lot of people. But on the other hand, I also question why on earth things like TikTok, social media are full of corridors of dancing, medical workers, doctors, surgeons, nurses, why they're doing formation dancing in the car park outside the hospitals, why they're dancing on the roof to music. How do they have time to do this? And why are they all dancing? Are they laughing at us? Are they, are they so bored? What's, what's your take on that? Well, the thing is, is that I actually have uh, two really good videos by, uh, on my, my uh, show items pages about uh, nurses from the NH, uh, NHS. And they have both come out and talked about this. But there is a, uh, and I've heard this also from people in the United States. I know someone who is involved in this. I've also talked to someone at a drugstore. People are getting paid all kinds of bonuses and extra pay and getting discounts here and getting free trips and this and that to basically uh, do these things and keep their mouths shut no matter what they see uh, and no matter what happens. And some people are actually speaking about it generally at the cost of their job. They're either voluntarily leaving, knowing they will get fired as soon as they blow the whistles, but uh, or they are, you know, doing that and then getting fired. But uh, my take on it is that uh, there's a whole level of corruption that we can't even imagine that's going on, uh, and now we're starting to really confirm a lot of that. Uh, these people are complicit. I mean, I I have a thing um, about that from the I have a thing actually, interestingly enough, from the pre Nuremberg. Uh, trials about the responsibility of medical professionals, and it's very clear. I mean, these people cannot get away with this. But that's Is what that they the are doing. Right now. Oath? I mean, that no, they're also violating of... that. <laughs> they, they have more than a few things on their hands. Now, the Hippocratic Oath is separate from that, but yes, it's it's a it's a, you know they're violating that too. They are not doing the best thing for their patients, you know. So, and and many of them are the good ones. They're coming forward and. and it's, I'm talking about it. So, so let's 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 talk about let's talk about a generic person who elderly person, let's say, that is, you know, clearly watching mainstream media, becoming afraid, becoming frightened by the propaganda that's coming out twenty four seven. That in itself is enough to make somebody feel less good in themselves. Uh, psychologically, it, it's a very negative factor. Uh, we know that the uh, flight or fight um, sort of scenario with which, which the body can go into, um, when somebody's depressed, their immune system reduces in terms of effectivity. And so when they're suffocated by a mask? Trauma well, <laughs> That's before we even get to the use of masks, yes. But the psychological level is a very negative factor. Straight away, people, that's obviously what's leading to these suicides, which Kintia mentioned earlier in, in her opening. So 
that's that's the negative psychological part. Then what we have is the any kind of symptom like a sniffle, a sneeze, a cough, uh, a fever. People get those all the time. Um, from allergies, from dust, from pollen, also from viruses. Okay, fair enough. Also from the common cold. But let's just say if somebody possesses one of those symptoms, then in this crazy inverted world we're living in the last sort of 18 months, whatever it is, then a medical practitioner has the right to say that they probably have COVID. So straight away, they're branded. It's already, they're, they're, they step onto the conveyor belt at that point. I'm imagining like those little sushi restaurants where you have the food going round and round and round. <laughs> That's the point where the elderly people or any people actually for that matter, but let's just focus on the elderly people and get on that conveyor belt and they have less control in which direction they're going to go and they have to go round and round and round according to the rules uh, being dictated by the driver of the conveyor belt. And we, let's, let's go through a scenario, um, how that's going to work. So if, these, if this elderly person is admitted to uh, a hospital because they have a fever or because doctors, I don't think, make house calls anymore, do they? Do they with you? Uh, no. No, it's pretty pretty rare. <laughs> like, so never. <laughs> the, the, the definition of a house call now is Zoom, I think, if you're lucky, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a different sort of house call. So if somebody goes to a hospital, and then what I've heard on many occasions, and also from interviews I've been listening to in the last week or so, especially in this particular subject, is that the person who had the uh, the symptom, you know, the sniff, the cough, the fever, is admitted to a hospital, um, but the family are not always allowed to accompany them. So straight away they're separated. Now, in some right. of the interviews, sorry, so, go ahead. So then they have no advocacy, and, and, and anybody who's been with anybody in the hospital knows you must have an advocate. You must. It's very Absolutely. dangerous. Absolutely. You need, you need a co-driver. You need somebody to spar with, to think, to brainstorm, even to take advice or just to say, what did they say? Are you sure? Is that the right? Really? You know, even on whatever level it is. And some of the people I was, I was listening to in, in the interviews, I've been researching for the last week or so, some of them were, one man was even illiterate. He was an elderly gentleman. His daughter went with him. And he literally could not read. That doesn't mean he's stupid. It just means he had a form of dyslexia. Uh, maybe, maybe I have a form of dyslexia. <laughs> Verbal dyslexia. But he, had company. A, he had some form of dyslexia, so he could not read. So, you know, please read this and sign this. That means absolutely nothing to him. It may as well be a, you know, a reel of toilet roll paper. It, it, it's, so he was not allowed, under very strict orders, to be accompanied by his daughter. So straight away, he's on his own. He, he's isolated. This conveyor belt I'm talking about is intensifying. The, the direction is being totally managed now by the people in the hospital through closed doors. And by the way, since when does a hospital need armed guards outside? I'm not saying every hospital does, but it seems the security has been massively... Well, uh, when, they're, when they're trying to hide something and uh, people are suspicious, they need, they need a lot of security. Right? Yeah. And, and we have seen a number of videos, we've featured them over the last year or so as well, of people who did go into hospitals, break through the security line, not physically, well, 
sometimes physically, but with video cameras. And we've seen it in India, Mexico, we've seen it in Italy, uh, all around the world. We've seen these videos of people going to hospitals through a back door, through an open window, whatever it is, and walk around, and they are empty. full empty. Thank you very much. <laughs> and yet that is very contradictory to what we hear on the mainstream media. So the person, the elderly person, goes into the hospital, they're isolated, they then are put into um, a, a waiting room. They are, uh, this is from first-hand accounts. Obviously, I've not done it myself. So I'm, I'm going on first-hand accounts here. And that they are diagnosed with COVID or suspect, suspected COVID-19. So what's the first thing they do? They take a PCR, not a test, a PCR, and you cook it up, anything over 25 cycles, 30 cycles, 40 cycles. Sure, you, you can probably make a tree have COVID-19 or show to have COVID-19 if you put it through enough cycles. So... Right, you know, and, and I want to just, I don't want to interrupt, but I want, I want people to understand that this is a logarithmic system, the numbers here. So every time we say if it's 25 cycles, it's times that again every time you go up. So this is logarithmic. This is not a, uh, you know, uh, an addition. This is a multiplication. So that's all. So it's like an earthquake. Yes, so, it's logarithmic, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just you're still using the word logarithmic, but you know, um, one one level, one number more is not just a little bit more; it is double ten. the previous number. Yeah, right. and in uh, earthquakes, I think it's ten times. It's ten times each is it point. Ten? Yeah, I didn't know is. that. Yeah, yeah. I okay. think so. I mean, I could be wrong, but I believe that's correct. Okay. So um, the person's inside; they have a PCR. And of course, the PCR, I think we, we, straight away, as soon as somebody is shown to have a high or a positive PCR uh, result, then that hospital gets funding, right? Oh, a lot of funding. Uh, I did some research on that back in uh, last year, or over a year ago. And uh, the one that had the highest amount in the United States was uh, West Virginia, got uh, $479,000 per COVID diagnosis. Wait, wait a second. Is that real money or is that sort of bullshit paper money that Biden is printing hand over fist at the moment? Well, it was last year, so uh, the money was worth more last year. (laughs) Well, of course, because of inflation, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, that was last year's numbers. Um, I think the, uh, the, I'm trying to think what the lowest one was. It was interesting because I read this thing and I'm like, wow, I wonder what makes, you know, these states so expensive and these other states not so much. And you know, why, why some were so valuable, the getting a, a COVID diagnosis and some weren't. Um, but I do know, you know, they offered all kinds of incentives, too. They've actually offered people incentives in... Um, Anessa? Huh? Let's hear about it after the break. All right. Talk radio or pictures on demand. 
liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nominally access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Photo episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. My approach to it has been, of course, from this academic scientific side to try to show that from that point of view that even in the, in the depths of the, of the data that they're presenting, they don't have a case. They've misrepresented things. They've distorted things in the public representations. And of course, I'm not alone in having come to that conclusion. Number one, there are an increased number of deaths for 2020. But number two, these are not caused by COVID-19. They're caused by the biological and psychological effects of the lockdowns themselves. Because when you lock people down, when you wreck an economy, you get an increase in heart disease and cancers. You get an increase in what is called deaths of despair. Oh, you get suicides, you get drug addiction going up and overdoses killing people. And all of these things put together by my estimate in my research paper, shows that as many as 600,000 people died in 2020 from just these things. Deaths by despair and the effects of the lockdowns and the forced masking. This is Dr. James DeMeo, and I'm speaking to you from the other side of the news, being interviewed by three intelligent people. And I found it to be a very enlightening and helpful and wonderful experience. Your program, I must say, compliments you. You're doing a great job in assisting to get around these barriers of censorship and erasure that the mainstream media is doing. Uh, so it's very important, and I congratulate you for the work you're doing.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Other Side of the News. And tonight's show is called Hotel California, the hotel which is difficult to check out of. Um, Kintia and Aneta also with me. My name is Timothy Saunders. We're in mid-flow, so I'm going to continue. Aneta, we're just talking about this hypothetical elderly person who has now entered the hospital uh, has been isolated from the rest of his or her family. And on the inside, one of the following a PCR, which of course then triggers an awful lot of funding. And by the way, $400,000 does seem like an awful lot of money for one person. Is that number correct? Yeah, 479 or 78. Uh, wow. I can't, I can't remember, but who cares about the 1,000 at that point? <laughs> I, I did want to, yeah, I wanted to say too, like even in New York, and they came right out with it and they said, you know, if, if you want to change your death certificate of your loved one to having died of COVID, no, no proof necessary. If you want to change it, we'll give you a $9,000 funeral, uh, I don't know, bonus and incentive. Uh, we, and incentive yeah, and, and we will do it retroactively. They could have died last year and we'll still do it. So, so it's cooking, cooking the books, and you get a nine, you get a free. Well, I don't know if it's a free funeral, but you get a nine thousand dollar incentive to do it. That's correct. No proof. That's correct. And yet, and yet, no autopsies have been allowed at all, have they? Well, they haven't. But there was a gentleman. Actually, I, I saw his video today. His mother died, I think, uh, about you know a couple of weeks ago, and I believe it. I think it was in Arizona or something. Anyway, the same thing. You know, they, they, she got the, she got the jab. Uh, she she uh, was seemingly doing well, and then she just literally fell face down, and they found her dead. and And it was right afterwards, and uh, they knew it was what it was, and they uh, wrote up this bogus, you know, coroner report. They refused to do anything, so he hired a private coroner, and the guy, you know, uh, came in and and did the uh, autopsy. And it was most definitely, I'd, I'd have to go and look up the details. I, I did put it on my Patrick Henry uh, telegram thread. For, for those of you that are listening that are interested in, in this huge amounts of articles, you can pick and choose. Uh, all of that stuff's over there in the uh, Patrick Henry telegram thread. So that, that story's up there too, that video of that guy explaining the autopsy. So there, there was at least one. So we'll check that out after the show for sure. Thank you. So... Going further, then a huge amount of funding. I still think $479,000 seems a huge amount of money for the hospital to gain if they can prove somebody has... Uh... They don't have to prove it. That's the thing. They can just say that they did. I mean, there's no autopsies. The, the tests are bogus. They can just so say that it is. This man or lady had a fever, coughed a little bit, and looked a bit unwell, so give me $479,000. Well, basically, I think that's what was going on. And the thing is, is like uh, that, that nurse, Erin, uh, uh, she came out of Florida and she went up to New York and she was I remember that you know, undercover filming it. And she said these people were coming in, they were absolutely fine. And, you know, they put them, they sedate them, put them on ventilators and 20 minutes later, they'd be dead. Uh, mm. She said she saw it happening over and over and she filmed it and she showed the charts. These, these people were killed for money. I mean, they flat out killed them. Absolutely. That was a very moving uh, series of interviews, actually, I remember. There was, I think, two. One when she was just about, when she was still working in the hospital in New York, and I think there was one afterwards. I haven't seen any more since then, but uh, I hope she's safe and well. 
there's been a documentary put out on her. I don't remember the name right off, but uh, if you search it out, there is a documentary series that was put out about that. So, mm-hmm. so well, the next interesting point, I think, in this, this, uh, this conveyor belt uh, is that patients are, are given a DNR. I don't know what you call that in the United States, but DNR is do not resuscitate yeah. order. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Okay. And there are, there are different variations of that. I think there's a DNAR. I'm not quite sure what that stands for, but... Um, we, have a, we also have a do not intubate. So in other words, don't put them on, do not resuscitate, but also do not intubate. In other words, keep them off a of life support if they, they haven't, uh, they just need a respiratory. No, so that's do okay. not intubate. Yeah. So is this new? I mean, it's not a new, new term maybe, but it seems to be new that it's automatically given to all these people. Does this come from the protocol issued by the WHO that all the governments are just, you know, rolled down their trousers and uh, bent over to accept? Well, I'm not really sure, but I do know that I, I had heard from respiratory therapists that the protocol for the respiratory, uh, you know, the, the protocol they were using with the respirators was completely new and different. And many of the uh, respiratory therapists were like, this is completely wrong. I mean, this will rupture the uh, little air sacs in the lungs and mm. they will fill with fluid and within 20 minutes they'll be dead. And, and how many times did we hear oh, I, they were in and then 20 minutes later they were dead? Uh, I've, I've heard very similar things that, that, you know, when it happens, the transition is very quick, can be very quick. Well, I think it's happening like uh, not when it happens, but it happens as a uh, matter of course, if you're mm. one of the unfortunate people that comes in and has that happen. And with no one, no one around you to protect you, no family. I mean, I, I am, I am a vicious uh, patient advocate. Uh, everyone in my family will tell you that there's no one better to have. And, but if you don't have someone like that, and I've been in that situation, uh, it's really a, a problem, and it's, it, it can cost you your life. And these people, are none of them have that because they're not allowing anyone to come in with them. And, and there's a reason behind that, I'm sure. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so that then we come into the, the point where people who are suspected to have COVID, and, okay, maybe they've come up with some highly cooked result from a PCR um, to actually sort of say that they've become a member of the case club. That's not to say they have COVID-19 because that hasn't been isolated anyway yet, but let's just say that they are a member of the case club. Uh, Some of these patients are then put into a ward with people who are also confirmed to have confirmed to have to be a member of this case club. So surely if you're trying not to get sick and if you're trying to avoid the virus, why on earth would you want to be put into a room with a load of other sick people? I don't know. Maybe we should ask uh, Como and, and Newsom and Whitmer a few of those questions because that's exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. Mm. And not only that, but they also took people out of uh, hospitals and put them into uh, elderly care homes. That's exactly right? it, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's how they got the numbers so high. And if they were getting money for all, the, for all those deaths and they wanted to, get, they wanted to scare the bejesus out of people, and make it sound like it was real, and this is a real thing, which it really is a flu, um, then, you know, that's a good way to do it. It's a good Can you good. imagine you, you, you tra- tra- traverse your life, and, you know, at a certain point, it, it's, it's maybe decided by your family or yourself, or hopefully through mutual uh, agreement, that, you know, they do make the transition to a, a care home. Then it's a community. It's like your home has become a room, and then you have like a, you know an eating place, and you have a conversation, a sofa room, a place to watch TV, whatever it is. But 
suddenly all these strangers come in, and not only are they strange in themselves, but also they are apparently carrying a virus with them. Now, what does that do to the psychology, to the whole community? Well, I say if, if I was in it, I, I mean, if, if I actually believed that it was real, which I think that they do because they don't have um, such a good way of finding any other information, maybe. I mean, these are the very same people that aren't really listening outside of mainstream media. They aren't necessarily computer literate with access to all of that easily. You know, these aren't the people that are going to find out that there's some other story. Right? Right. So let's move on a little bit further that when people are put onto a ventilator, then the hospitals gain more funding. I'm not sure if that's more than the 479,000, but that's that, that's, more. that's for a corpse. Okay. Yeah. I, I remember there were numbers like uh, somebody has a, a test. It was something in the region of like, I don't know, um, five, 6,000, and then it went yeah. up to 13,000. And if they went on a ventilator, it went up to 39,000, something like that. I remember that was about a year ago. Right. It, it's a, it's a um, yeah, it's a staggered scale. Uh, Literally yeah. staggering scale. Yeah. So... At some point, if somebody's put onto a ventilator, then, you know, they, they have tubes uh, put into them. Um, they're also given a form of drug because obviously the, the, the natural reflex is to spit out this, spit out, pull out, spit out this, reject this pipe that's been inserted into your, uh, into your body. And presumably, if, if you're busy with a, you know, with a pipe in your mouth, then you cannot eat or drink. So how, how, does, how do people get nourished during this time? Do you know? Um, yeah, well, they, they, use, you know, they use IVs, and they, uh, they also can put drugs in the IVs. Um, I mean, I've, I've been hospitalized enough times to know, you know, they, they don't come in and jab you. They, they put it in through the IV bag. So that's or a permanent it, needle that's in one of your veins or arteries that is always yes. there, taped in place. It's a catheter, yes, and and then they also. I mean, I haven't. I have, I'm, I'm giving things to my cat right now, so I'm staring at an IV bag. And there's also a little uh, inlet at the at near the end of the tube, a little like kind of Y off of the the main tube, where they can put the injections directly in. So I've had that experience where they put morphine in, and you, you can literally feel it crawling up your veins. Wow. And it's it's very direct that way. Um, mm-hmm. It goes right into the bloodstream. It doesn't have to go through muscle tissue. So you could put anything in those. Uh, you can put in the whole bag and make it a drip for antibiotics, or you can make it very sudden. Okay. Now, is there a difference between an IV and what they're calling uh, syringe drivers in the UK? Is it the same thing, or are we talking a different, a different thing here? I, I don't know for sure. I do know that IV is intravenous. Mm-hmm. It's, in the, it's in the vein. It's actually in a vein. It is not in the, uh, you know, it's, it's not a tissue. I think I think it's a similar setup. Maybe it's just a different term. Maybe maybe technically uh, there are subtle differences. I don't know. But at the end of the day, it is a permanently inserted needle into a vein. Or in, it's a vein or artery. Again, I, I'm not a specialist in this direction. So it's a vein. <laughs> a vein. Um, and as you say, it can carry uh, plasma. It can carry nutrients. It can carry drugs. And this is where we start to warm up the conversation a little bit more. So should we jump to the, the there was a, an interview 
between an interview between uh, Matt Hancock, who is the UK's health secretary, and a doctor called Dr. Luke Evans. And this was quite a while ago, some months ago. I don't know the exact date. I can look it up. I can post it as well in our links. In fact, I did post it in our links. Um, the conversation, it was one of these online Zoom sort of governmental conversations where, you know, people obviously, you know, far too dangerous to go out and uh, to actually have meetings, but you have to do everything on Zoom these days. Except for having cocktails and nice dinners, of course, and vacations. Ah, yeah, yeah, apart from those things, yeah. But, you know, then, then you know, that those are for the important people that can... Oh, yeah. Uh, are you know, I don't get invited to French Laundry every day, but Newsom does, so, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and in this conversation, there was what has been described, and I'm going to lift words from uh, one of the interviews I, I've, I've watched in the last week, because, again, I'm not trying to ride on the coattails of somebody's interview, the whole reason why we're discussing this is to bring our insight and to bring awareness to another whole group of people, uh, which is our listeners, um, which are predominantly American, and also the other 188 countries or whatever we, we broadcast to. So in this interview, the, there was this sort of nudge-nudge, wink-wink attitude between this doctor and the health secretary, Matt Hancock. And they were talking about a good death. And this is basically making the preparations for people who are in hospitals, in COVID wards, who are on ventilators possibly, um, who have these syringe drivers or IDs so that they're having all sorts of drugs and nutrients and things pumped into their, their, their body. So a good death, by the way, translates directly to euthanasia. So, so when, when they were talking about this, you know, this term, a good death, on the interview, and a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, it, and if you watch the interview, you'll see it, it, it wasn't just like a, a comment in passing. It really was a, a, loaded, a loaded phrase. Dr. Luke Evans said, do we have enough uh, equipment, drugs, and personnel to make sure that the elderly and you know, the, the victims can have a good death? Well, they didn't call them the victims, though. No, I'm using that word. No. <laughs> what should we call them? Patients. Well, they called them patients, I believe, in the interview, but uh, we know what it really is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then it came down to the point where Matt Hancock said, yes, well, blah, 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 as he usually does. But the, he highlighted a particular drug, which I believe is um, an opiate, and it is called uh, midazolam. And midazolam, and there are also a couple of other versions of it, and excuse me for um, just double-checking, is hyacin is another version of it, and I'm not quite sure what this is because I can barely read my own writing, but it is, there is another variation of the word. But basically, these drugs are uh, used in, in death row. In fact, I think one of them was even banned from being used in death row because of its uh, because negative of the way it, 
well, because of the way it works, which I don't know if we're ready to get to that, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think we're getting there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Matt Hancock said, yes, well, actually, there was uh, something in the press recently, uh, a few days ago, and the problem, the shortages were not as, as bad as, as it appeared. And yes, we've confirmed now that we have, in fact, secured enough orders of this uh, midazolam to, to suffice what we need. And I think, Annette, you were talking about how much that was. I mean, there was a huge spike. Right. Well, yeah, there's a, there's kind of a baseline of, of the amount of drugs that are, are the doses that are ordered or purchased for every month. Um, and uh, this number in the UK increased by 100,000 more doses per month since uh, March of 2020. Now, their excuse for this is that they said that they were just using it on more operations. Operations? The issue, Which operations? Right. Well, that's just it, because, you know, the issue here is we all know that many operations never occurred. In fact, the total surgeries have gone way down. So how could you have your dosage for that drug increased by 100,000 per month and yet have what the very thing they're saying that they're using it for, which we know they are not, but that's what they're saying is like, well, how, how stupid do you think we all are? Apparently, it's... You know, there's there's no answer to that. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what they that's what they tried to say. That was their narrative, which is quite easy to see through. And the other thing I, I want to point out on this, the, the reason that they they did, uh, it still can be used as a lethal injection. It can also be it can also be applied transdermally. So you can have it from a patch. You can slap mm-hmm. a yeah. patch on. Um, I'm not sure if fentanyl, I'm not sure if fentanyl is in the same family or not, but actually fentanyl is used for the same thing, uh, and it is used in a patch form. But anyway, uh, the, the thing is, is this uh, represses the respiratory response uh, mm. to the point that you just, you can't breathe anymore. And it's very interesting that they would be using such a drug on these, quote, COVID cases with these people that are having problems breathing. Why would you use a drug that's known for respiratory um, you know, it's repression. It doesn't make any sense. And we know that this is how most opioid, um, you know, deaths occur, by the way, you know, from the, the opioid addiction thing that we have. It's this horrible problem. And most of those people uh, stop breathing. They, they, they die from suffocation. So our generic elderly person is in is in hospital and in some of the interviews I've been listening to in the last week or so, their family members were allowed to visit them. I don't, I don't know how they managed to gain access um, in a COVID ward, a COVID room. I don't really understand fully how they were allowed in, and yet other people were not. But they were, I believe, I think it was on because they were they were saying that the, the patient was on, yeah, in, in, in the last stages of life. I think that's on that respect, they were allowed in, but it, that in itself doesn't make any sense either. But I'm, I'm going on first-hand, uh, not first-hand, excuse me, somebody's first-hand uh, report of what happened. Um, so they, they, they noticed, they, they said, what's this patch on the arm? And you're exactly right in saying it's fentanyl. So what is that for? And the nurse has said, well, it, it's, uh, it's part of the procedure at this stage. And uh, they said, we'll take it off. We don't want it. Yeah. Um, 
And by the way, what's that? This, they're pointing at a, a syringe driver, which apparently was put into this, this woman's leg. Um, I guess they need to find the correct vein. Um, and what is that for? Uh, that's for administering, um, you know, the nutrients or um, medicine, medication and so on and so on. Yeah, it no. usually has the, the ringer's lactate in it. This is a saline solution, and they can put anything in it. Yeah? So. Mm. so at this particular stage, this particular interview, the family said that the, they, they wanted to wean their mother off this machine with the ventilator. So they, they, they did. They finally, they were recording with their, their smartphone and the conversations between the doctors and the nurses. And eventually they did say, once they realized they were recording this, they did agree to take the woman off the ventilator to wean her off. And then she had, I think, a, an oxygen mask to actually improve her breathing and so on. And she was actually asking for, you know, drinks and to ask to eat things. And she, I think at one point she even asked to eat a, a, I don't know, a hamburger or something or can you know, have some dessert or, you know, I guess when people are sick, they, they sometimes, you know, get this craving for a certain flavor or taste. So she was not that bad in that bad estate. But what was happening was every time the family came to visit, they were being told that, oh, this is bad, this is the last stage, and uh, probably we're going to lose her very soon, and so on. And yet while they were visiting, they were sort of bringing, seeking food and drinks in, um, and saying, and then she was saying, oh, can you get me, uh, can you get me one of these, or can I really want to eat this and drink this? So obviously there were two different strategies in play at this point. You know, the patient wanted to live, and the hospital kept on reporting, well, we think this is the last stage. And it seems that every time the family turned their back, then the patch would return, the fentanyl patch would return, and also the syringe drive, obviously, they're going to pull it out and put it in every day. But, I mean, that, that seemed to be a part of the show on, on a regular basis, and there's no clue of what actually, what cocktails they were putting in there. But it turns out that the... What they were putting in there was this uh, midazolam, uh, which is basically starting off on lower doses and increasing it, and it's an, an opioid, opioid um, which, as you say, is, is fighting, it, it, it's stopping the breathing from, from being effective, and it's basically administering death. It, it is literally a medication, a chemical, which was killing this woman and it was according to the strategy and it, it, it came to a point that I'm not going to go into all the details because we don't have time and it's, it's not fair to expose all the details but these things can be listened to in, in the links if you choose to but this woman eventually um, deteriorated because obviously she was fighting against this barrage of, of yeah, chemical death and ultimately I think the family were there at nine o'clock one night and uh, they overheard one particular nurse say, uh, well, according to this, you know, we won't be needing this bed tomorrow. And the daughter said, well, what do you mean? And uh, she said, well, you didn't hear about the plan. What plan? And they said, well, your, your, your mother will pass away tonight at one o'clock. Now, that's pretty interesting to predict exactly when somebody's going to exit. That's very that... interesting. And that's a consistent thing with most of these stories, isn't it? It is. It is. And that, the, the point is, from the, the hospital's point of view, they're administering this drug, uh, mydazolam, 
to the point where they could predict within, within, I guess, an hour or so, or within certainly a couple of hours, when this person's life on this planet would be terminated. And that, to me, is euthanasia. So on that bright note, we're coming up to a break. And uh, I think we should just make a summary of what we talked about and then turn up the volume a little bit. And I think we should carry out the rest of the show uh, aiming towards a bringing awareness and aiming towards a brighter note because this has been pretty somber up to now. You're listening to the other side of the news. I'm joined with Aneta Driscoll and Kintia. My name is Timothy Saunders. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Kaufman, natural healing consultant. Welcome to the other side of the news where they're open to hearing the truth and take it seriously. The first thing you got to look at is the methods, like nothing else matters because that's where they describe the experiment. So then you can decide if what you can conclude from the experiment, (laughs) right? And that's really, really important because, you know, they make false claims and people don't understand how to use statistics and all these things could be misleading. What I noticed that they do now is they put the method section at the very end. And in some papers, it's in a separate document that's like an addendum. So in other words, they just present the the results and conclusions and an introduction section, and nobody looks at the methods. But that's the most important thing, because if you don't know that, you don't actually know what they did. Because, you know, there's a lot of art to experimental design. And, uh, you know, some people can be very clever about it. Some can be very elegant about it. But there's also, like, many ways that things could be fudged. And there's books on this, right? Like one of Bill Gates' favorite books, How to Lie with Statistics. Then, you know, you have the John Ioannidis article, which is one of the most highly cited papers, where he says more than half of all published research is false. Right. So, mm. but, but how many scientists, when they go to read a paper, say there's a 50% chance that this article is false. So I better read it really carefully. Right. They don't do that. But all this clinical research, it's really just, it's really marketing. It, that, that's what it is. It's not actual research. With this, the vaccine trials, you know, it, it's just, they basically designed it exactly perfectly to show what they could say you know that bogus 95 percent effectiveness uh that's the the relative risk reduction of having a test and it's not even the overall risk reduction would be like 0.4 percent but they describe it that way it's a statistical trick where they could say 95 percent and they also defined the outcome and then they had to wait seven days after the vaccine but all the people who got sick within that seven days didn't count you know all kinds of uh they're 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 experts at this they know they know what they're doing and and it's really hard to even figure out what they're doing Your heart and not your garment. 
the truth is there, for who have eyes to see? Our Charlotte, he has no place in this judgment. Remember the words of prophecy. Children run, come to truth and right. That's what I'm about. You know the truth and right. Teach it to the children. You know the truth and right. Teach it to the children so they should know. No, 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 no. Children say I lit the prayer. Every night before you go to sleep Cause tomorrow is promised to no one When you think it's peace and safety Lord, it could be, could be sudden destruction Cause we know, yes we Welcome back. Tonight's show is Hotel California. We know what happens there. I am joined this evening with my co-host, Kinthea and Timothy Saunders, and my name's Annetta, and we're going to continue on with our conversation. So, Timothy, where would you like to go from here? Well, I've been rambling for the last, well, hour and a half about trying to convey this story, trying to put it in perspective, trying to bring awareness about this. I've, I think it'd be very useful to summarize very quickly. I think it'd be very useful if, if you could summarize very quickly the main points, you know, literally bullet points, because I don't want to dwell on the details anymore. But I think we, we, should, do, we should summarize it, make some bullet points, and then come to a conclusion, you know, make that aha moment about what is actually going on and how widespread it is around the world. That's what I'd like to do. Okay, well. Uh, I don't have bullet points ready, but I'm sure I can, can come up with some. Because, I'm sure you can. <laughs> uh, well, you know, what we have here is I, I do see it as we have a, a pandemic. It's a scandemic, a pandemic. There's a lot of words for it, but uh, we have something that isn't what it's being told. And it's being used for all kinds of different things. And it's uh, the uses are, are very nefarious. So, you know, we have also to scare the living daylights out of people. We have false statistics with a false narrative, a virus that's never been isolated. We have tests for a virus that's never been isolated. Very interesting. Tests that were uh, known to not be actual tests. Uh, they're, they're just telling you whether there's genetic stuff present. And then, you know, we have a, a completely skewed um, a system as far as the number of cycles they're running. So we have a huge number of false positives. And many people don't understand that, and they're terrified. So they go in, they go into a facility, especially elderly people. Uh, they all know that they have a higher rate of death. Even even so, it's extremely low. It's actually lower or as low as the flu on most seasons. Uh, not real high. Uh, but anyway, they go in. They've, they've been brainwashed because they've been sitting in front of their TV. And uh, they go in and they don't have a family. They don't have a, a, an advocate to a friend, a family, to 
make sure things are going right. And we have a, uh, I think an agenda. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, this was not a mistake. We've got people discussing it on Zoom meetings and, you know, using not so, not so well cloaked words. And then, you know, we have this evidence of these doses of this drug that's used to um, repress a respiratory response and huge amounts of this. And so we have all that. And then, and then we literally have hundreds of, of people with firsthand accounts of this having happened to their loved ones. And they have some consistencies to their stories. Their stories are, they are told when their loved one's going to die. Well, how does anyone know that unless they're being told, you know, uh, by what the, 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 it's on the chart. We're going to, we're going to take this one out at one o'clock, you know, and we're going to have this vet bed free tomorrow. And how much money is involved here? Let's always, you know, my favorite thing is follow the money, follow the money, follow the money. Uh, one of the ways that we figured this out so early on was following the money. There were all kinds of trails and this whole thing about, Broadsheet this week and his emails being revealed, and that he knew, you know, that he funded it, that it was out of Wuhan, that he had his fingers all over it. Yeah, that's not a real big surprise. We talked about that last April in 2020, uh, exactly how that worked, because you know, the way it's figured out is the money. So this is no different. They are, they have a money trail, and they have no ethics or morals, and they don't care about your loved one. They don't care that they're doing this and. This isn't totally isolated to uh, elderly people, although we are talking about elderly people in general because they're a more vulnerable population. But it's happened across the board, and we have many people that have stepped out, whistleblowers that have said this is going on. And we need to be aware of it, and we need to bring uh, we need to bring attention to this, and and you know pursue this so that it doesn't happen to more people. And these people stand for their crimes. These are all crimes against humanity. These are murderers, mass murderers, and they're getting away with it until we, the people, do something about it. So those aren't exactly bullet points. I guess that's just my Well, no, they didn't call you Annette Uzi for nothing, so uh, thank you for that. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, for for me, from personal experiences with members of my family who passed away and from things I've heard over the years and also certainly from this, what should be a really breaking story in the last week, um, for me, the National Health Service is not about health, um, as crazy it may, as it may sound to some people. To me, yes, you know, they do patch people up, they do repair people, they do, um, you know, they do a lot of good things. But in terms of this, this avenue of elderly people or sick people who are on their way out, I think that. I, 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 it's not about recovery. It seems about a managed departure. And uh, I think this is a very, very somber subject. And what I'm really interested to know is, do you think this is also happening in the United States, for example? I mean, do you have any stories you can cross-reference this with? Obviously, there's the COVID aspect of this, and we, we've talked about and highlighted that earlier. But generally speaking, do you think that there is a, a managed departure system for for people in the United States as well they're a different health system absolutely I have no no absolutely no doubt in my mind and uh, you know it was interesting because uh, you know Gabe's son or Gabe's son uh, um, Thea's son 
uh, is friends with this person who is a, uh, you know, a healthcare provider. And she actually said the same story this week out of nowhere, just randomly for no particular reason. And uh, I have a friend who's, you know, that's a, a mortician who is on the board of directors for a, uh, um, a retirement home. And she is very concerned about these things. These things are, I think, happening every day. I have a father who, unfortunately, is in one of these facilities. And uh, I have no control over it. He, everything's been handed to my stepmother. But, uh, you know, he's been vaccinated. I would never agree to that. And he would never agree to that. Uh, they are doing things to him that I know that he would never want done. And he's there and he's been locked away with no contact with any family since March 13th of 2020. Can you, can you talk with him on the telephone? Is it possible? Uh, unfortunately not. He is pretty advanced in Alzheimer's now. Mm. So, and, um, but uh, yeah, we don't know. You know, we don't have, I think he's in a fairly good facility as those things go, but uh, it's pretty, you know, you, you really lose. I, I can tell you, I, I've been, <laughs> I've been in an emergency room with somebody sitting right on the other side of a glass window and couldn't get their attention. And uh, bad things were happening to me or not happening. Actually, I was being completely ignored left in this room because they lost my test results. And so I fell off of the thing and there was nobody advocating for me. And so then I just got left there for hours until finally someone realized, you know, and I kept trying to get help, but I was so sick, you know, and so if you don't have help, they can do anything they want or not do anything they want. And uh, scary, the scary system. So yes, I do think that this is absolutely a to, reality here. To, to challenge in the example of your father, I'm sorry to, um, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to draw attention to, I don't want to upset you by talking about it. But on the other hand, I don't want to talk about somebody we don't know. I'd rather talk about something we do know and have first-hand evidence is a big word, but certainly first-hand feedback from. But in the case of your father, and with the greatest respect, and if this controls departure management system, this, this, this a good death protocol is in place, then, then why is he still around now? That would be my question. Oh, I, you know what? I was just thinking of that answer of what, before you asked the question. Interesting. Um, I believe because my father is in private care and he is uh, not being paid for except for by our family. And he's, I mean, it's quite expensive where he is. So, you know, a lot of money uh, to have him there. The facility that he's in does well when they have people. Now, if you were in a, um, state, a, a state or a county thing, I think that would be quite different. And mm-hmm. I, I, I hate to sound that way, but... Uh, there was a time when I didn't have medical insurance and I had a very, very serious uh, infection, a bone infection in my foot. And I was literally shuffled to three different hospitals by the time I got to the third one, which they called the indigent hospital, which is the county hospital. I was very close. I mean, within a very short period of time of having my foot amputated because it was all about the money. It wasn't about it was not about taking care of what was going on and that I had a very serious thing happening. It was about the money. And so I think it, it comes down to that again. My, my father is uh, paid for by private funds. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's clearly a, a very big difference between a government 
funded system and a, uh, a private funded system. But I mean, ultimately, the people in the United Kingdom pay for the National Health Service through their taxation. So it's yeah. not, so who the hell are the government to dictate if somebody lives or dies? Well, that happens here too, but they don't look at it that way. So like if I go to a county hospital, I, as I have been paying into that county hospital by being here, right? But uh, they don't see it that way. They don't see it as if I end up in a county, uh, uh, you know, nursing home, uh, if they don't see it that way. They see it as, I don't know what they see it as. It's like, it's like you're taking it out of their own pocket. So, um, yeah, I don't... That, that's like an inversion. I mean, we see that in the education system. We see that with, uh, it's only a week ago, I, I was watching an interview with, um, there was a woman, a mother in a, in a school who stood up and stood her ground and said, I'm not going to have you dictate what my children um, must do. I don't yeah. believe in, in this sort of early transgender conversations at his age. I don't think that you're correct to, you know, discriminate in this way. I don't think, and so on and so on. So the whole list of things like this, ultimately she said, you work for me. Hmm? I pay your taxes. And of course the, the, the board of teachers at the top of the, uh, on, on the podium, it's always good to be higher than the others, isn't it? It's a good uh, feeling of importance. Uh, they, they were saying, actually, we volunteer for this. And she said, well, you're still sitting on the desk that I bought with the other parents. You're still sitting under the electric light that's glowing through the electricity that we pay for and so on and so on. So I think there's a huge inversion of attitude that, you know, big organizations like the medical, state medical system, NHS, education system, so on. They had this, this enormous arrogance and also disconnect from the people. And I think that, that that's very true of what's happening in the world today. So I, I think so. I mean, I saw that. I saw. That. I think she was out in New York. It was really awesome <laughs> uh, that she stood up. But we all need to be doing this. I mean, people say, "What can I do? What can I do?" Well, you know, we've talked about this before. You can talk to people. You can, you know, help them through this. You can help open their eyes. She can also do these things. Uh, people say, "Well, you know, I'm, I've never been political." Well, start with your school board easiest thing to do is starting with your school board and, and it's terribly important because uh, they are doing awful things to children worldwide uh, and I mean we could go that would be a whole really depressing show uh, but you know we have this issue where these kids basically parents have sent them off to school and essentially abdicated the responsibility of what is actually happening to their children it, and uh, and it's not to like totally criticize parents because we know that they're they're busy trying to make money and that the 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 inflation is eating the daylights out of pretty much everybody and blah blah blah. But uh, we do need to, to to go back and take responsibility for all of these aspects uh, of our government right down to the school board and they teach um, they they teach these children things that uh, I don't think we want them to be taught or things about you know questioning their gender before they've even had any kind of uh, you know sexuality coming out of them you know uh, things about their race and, and making them feel certain ways like children are not naturally racist they they're 
are kind. They're loving towards everyone. And you have to be taught racism. Exactly. Exactly that. And the education system right now is teaching systemic racism. And if I was a parent, I'd be totally up in arms with this. This is not okay. And again, we can go into this about the medical system and the lies that they're teaching them and how they're taking away the, the uh, again, again, it goes back to the responsibility and the pencil thing. Is it the pencil's fault that you, that you didn't get the math problem right or is it yours? Because, I mean, that was kind of meant to be funny, but, you know, you have to take responsibility for your health. And back to the topic we have here, the problem we have here is that the state has taken responsibility to when your life is not worth, you know, you know, you're still a useless eater and we want to get you out of here. Okay. You're costing money. You're not worth anything. Let's, let's and, examine this. Sorry. Let's examine mm-hmm. this useless eater term because I'm, it just dawned on me. It's not like a revelation, but I mean, the, one of the reasons why they're targeting the elderly people could be because those elderly people are not only, as you, as you so kindly termed, useless eaters, according to some of these uh, arrogant individuals. But all, in other words, they do not contribute to the, you know, to the income of the country. But not only that, but they're also expecting to be paid out on a weekly basis in terms of pension. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you remove them from the equation, then it, it's a win-win for the government, isn't it? Right, as far as they're concerned. And there is a whole other thing, which is a, we've gotten into some of the other shows with the, the legal aspects and, and having um, funds. And, you know, in the United States, and I believe it's this way in most countries, that you aren't actually dead until you're 140 years old or something like that, even though you have a death certificate. That's a whole other bag of worms. But the point is, is that there's money there in your uh that's in your account, that you're a state that you don't have, that you're not accessing, but the government has it. And so this is, again, follow the money, follow the money. But if you're, if you're using funds out of your own account, that's as far as they're concerned, you're taking money out of their own pocket, even though it's not their money. So these are all things, again, we must turn around. We must take responsibility for this and, uh, you know, start doing things that we were never trained to do, that we've got a, we've got a steep educational, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, to climb. We've got the steep educational curve to climb and mm-hmm. we've got to get, we've, and, you know, I, I heard a great analogy, you know, with what's going on um, with this new world order and all the things that they're trying to, to do. And I said, it's like, they're, they're the tortoise and uh, we're the hare that's been sleeping under the tree. And the people have all been, you know, sleeping under the tree. And all of a sudden we wake up. It's like, oh, oh they're, they're like right at the finish line. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a very good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And we better like, you know, we, we better do some something, something and get, and get everything in gear and, and get over that finish line in a hurry. I mean, we got, we've got to make up for lost time and lost uh, knowledge. Well, there's this, this bubble, this perception of trust, trusting trusting the, the, the legal system, tr- trusting the government system, trusting the health system. Uh, I, I don't want to go through life uh, 
in terms of sort of paranoid individual, that's not what I mean. Again, that, that's, that's another psyop is just as, as akin to being a conspiracy theorist, I guess. You know, as soon as you talk about anything that's slightly controversial, you're branded as this controversial. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a conspiracy analyst. I just want much to point better. that It's more <laughs> truthful as well. But the point is that people are not aware that this is going on. And I'm sure that many people listen to this show, if they still even still are listening, uh, will, will have switched off. They will not accept this. They will not um, you know, even check it out because they're programmed in such a way that uh, what we're talking about is you know, the NHS, the health service, actually you know, predetermining when some, pe- some people are going to die, not some people, but it seems like a very widespread section of the population are going to die. It's not about health. It's not about recovery. It's about giving them a good death. And it mm-hmm. seems there's funding involved and it seems that there's a directive involved. It seems it's, it's quite possibly a global uh, setup. And all of these markers would point towards, in my opinion, a huge breaking news story, right? This should be all over the, all over the news. It should be all over the newspapers. Well, there's so many things like that right now, Timothy. I mean, look at what's going on in this country with the election audit. Okay. I mean, we don't we don't have to 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 censor, but the thing is, the censorship's massive in ev- in everything, including this, which people should be up in arms about this. These people are being killed. Let's be honest; these are they're snuffing these people out. And they are. No one is even aware of it, let alone doing anything. And it's the case with so many things that we've been so manipulated, and we almost wake up. The the architect person who did this research um, that passed on, as I say, to Gareth Ike, David Ike, Richie Allen, and uh, now we are picking up on it just to bring awareness, just to sort of resonate this this information so people can actually just take it in and hopefully reflect and uh, be aware be aware of what they're doing, what their family are doing. But Jackie Devoy, the mainstream media journalist, investigative journalist, she's very well respected, has had her work in all sorts of newspapers uh, for, for, for decades. She sent this story out based on, I think it's just under one year's research to 29 newspapers or mm. news agencies in, in, in certainly in the UK. I don't know if it extends to Europe, but certainly the UK, I believe. 29. And you know how many of those actually decide to pick up the story? Yeah, like nada. Absolutely zero. And yet if she sends an email with a different subject, different topic, they answer her. So it's not that it, it, it it's not that this message was lost in the pile of emails. It is, it is very, very selective that no way is this going into mainstream. Well, you know, and it's just, it's not just mainstream because we're dealing with the whole thing in, uh, you know, if you have, and, and we've been watching this. Uh, I, I, uh, I have, I'm very into this. I, I track a lot of things and, you know, the words keep changing. Which words can you say this week? Because you're going to get your channel removed or your, your, this will be taken down. It's, if you're not uh, in that world, you have no idea. But it's like this, the censorship is staggering in social media, which is now the alternative media. 
and now you know in, in mainstream media so we're really these this little rabbit here has really got to work hard to to be able to get to where um you know we need to be but i will say this timothy that the the ratings for the like cnn and and msnbc and all those they're terrible they're, they're not getting any viewership people have had it and they're getting more on on uh, alternative media so there is some things and those are the same people that are willing to cover stories like this so there is progress there is hope with that i'm very hopeful um and I think that there's a lot of good being done there. Well, that, that's very good to know. But the point is that all of this is transient. Nothing is ever stuck in, in, in solid for the rest of time. I mean, people, you know, say, I always watch Fox because it's this, or I watch BBC because of that, you know, whatever. The thing is, it's transient. Mm-hmm. The world is ever dynamic. And so the only way to be really sure about any story, in my opinion, is to look at both sides of the line and to... Uh, discern to to make sure that you understand what you're seeing, understand what the source is. Is that the original source? Is that they peppered it? Have they salted it? Is it the real story? Where does it come from? I mean, it's only a little while ago we saw these bodies of Indian people in, in the street, but then, oh, that wasn't actually due to COVID because they already showed it a few years ago because of a gas attack. Not a, not a very a uh, nice subject to end on, but the point is the same news story was used with a different title. And we've well, seen they've been that doing that, yeah. They've been doing that consistently. Remember the, the famous um, emergency room, you know, the ICU in Italy that was the same one as in New York and the same one as in LA or something. It was the exact same film clip. Mm-hmm. And they were caught red-handed. They had to do this all the time. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah you get, I say follow the money because if somebody has, if a doctor is is willing to put their medical license on the line. What's the value there except for trying to help people? Now, if you're getting paid $478,000 to put a death certificate with COVID, that's different. And that may be right where you need to be putting your nose. I understand that many people are not originating this, but by taking part in this, they are complicit. And at Mm -hmm. some point when this does hit the fan, and that time is coming up pretty soon, a lot of people are going to find themselves in, in, uh, in a bad situation. So I think the thing to do is to choose the right way and to choose the right way right now. It looks like we're out of runway uh, already. So, Anetta, thank you very much. Despite the initial unpleasant realization of the truth, you will see there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is an increasing number of respected journalists, writers, politicians, doctors, lawyers, influencers, artists, activists, and innovators who are wide awake and are already making great impact. All they require from you is to unplug from mainstream and social media propaganda, to make your own independent research, to stop acquiescing, and to stand up for what you believe in with respect to others. Remember, you are born with power, and you wake up each day with power. It's entirely up to you how you choose to retain or give it away. You've been listening to another live broadcast of The Other Side of the News. This 61st edition is entitled Hotel California and remains available to all listeners free of charge at www.theothersideofmidnight.com forward slash TSN. My name is Timothy Saunders, and together with co-host and producer Kintia and co-host and researcher Annette Driscoll, our special thanks. We wish you all a very positive week and look forward to reconnecting with you next time. Good night. Good night.